Welcome to the Gathering Church's audio sermon. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is the Gathering Church in Windsor, Ontario, and I'm Pastor Garth Lino. Welcome to our podcast. I encourage you to turn your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. We are continuing in this very mini-series, three sermons relating to to Easter, and uh, we are in Matthew's Gospel. But this morning, just for a moment, we're going to flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. So if there, is an, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. And uh, we think of Jesus. We pray, Father, that this morning as we speak of him, that the Spirit of God would bring home to each of our hearts the truth that Jesus loves us and that he died for sinners just like us. And Father, for those of us who know Jesus as Savior, we can truly say, Jesus died for me. That's my cross. He did it for me. Pray, Father, that others today would come to know Jesus Christ by declaring faith in him for themselves. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we continue in our study in uh, Matthew's gospel, we've been tracing our way uh, very briefly, very quickly, I might add, uh, from the trial of the Lord Jesus, and now we face Good Friday. Uh, Jesus, historically now, has been on the cross for about an hour and 20 uh, minutes or so, if he was on from uh, 9 o'clock in the morning onward. And Jesus has been described here in Matthew's gospel in a a very unusual way. 
Uh, if you're a reader of Matthew and if you took the time to read the entire book, you'd be uh, thinking to yourself, I think he's a newscaster. I think this sounds a little bit like the CBC. It's just declaring information. And very little time is spent here examining the spiritual realities of what we have before us. Physically speaking, no form of punishment has ever been so dehumanizing as crucifixion. When the Persians invented crucifixion in about 400 BC, they invented something that they designed for, uh, for, the, most, uh, for the most wicked of people to dispel in their minds of evil itself. This was the purpose of crucifixion. In fact, when the Romans adopted this, no Roman citizen would ever have been crucified. This was reserved for the absolute worst of all people. Matthew doesn't talk a lot about the physical pain at all either. And again, we are baffled as to why this is We wonder why he doesn't go right into the text. I mean, he gives us a bit of, in verse 46 of chapter 27 of Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And immediately we think, all right, here we go. Finally, Matthew is going to get into what Jesus is suffering because although crucifixion was absolutely horrendous, we we do know that the spiritual uh, work that God is doing at this moment to redeem sinful people is far worse than what men could do to, do to him. Jesus here, as Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, is becoming sin for us who knew no sin. He is becoming the embodiment of sin and suffering in the place of his people. In the garden the night before, it's not mentioned in Matthew, we have to go to John for this. Uh, he, is, he is sweating so profusely, it's like the, the great drops of blood falling to the ground. Horrendous realities of what theologians call his humiliation. Now when we think of humi- humiliation... To humiliate someone means that you are essentially embarrassing them by publicly making them out to be of lesser value than you are. That's what it means to be humiliated. And that is what is happening at the cross, but it's far worse. Humiliation has been deflated as we think of the Lord Jesus here because of our common vernacular. But the humiliation of Jesus is not just the attempts of the the Roman people and the Jewish leaders to reduce Jesus to essentially garbage. But his humiliation begins in eternity past with a plan to redeem sinful people from their sins. We see it when Jesus is born on a dirt floor to poor parents, laid in a trough, We see this as he goes through life and he experiences all of the human things that we experience. Now you might think, well, what's so bad about that? We're talking about the king of glory. We're talking about Jesus experiencing all of the ramifications of what sin has done in the world. Jesus is experiencing this and we don't hit that highlight. We don't notice this 
Because we don't know what it's like to be holy like Jesus is holy. And he comes in the world and he steps into humanity. And Jesus Christ becomes like you and me. This is the king and this is what Matthew has been hard pressed to try to demonstrate. That we are not just talking about someone who is righteous or last week we talked about his innocence. We are talking about holiness personified. His humiliation is accentuated on the cross. But even before the cross, we see his humiliation. We see Jesus scourged. Scourging was terrible. It was only reserved for, again, the worst of people. In fact, it was the precursor to crucifixion. This wooden handle with these leather straps embedded with with Uh, metal uh, balls that were intended to bruise you, to tenderize you like a piece of meat, and then pieces of goats or or ram's uh, bones that were embedded there intended to grip your flesh and to rip out everything. And oftentimes people would die from scourging. This is not flogging. One writer who actually... Uh, wrote about 30 years before Jesus was alive, was very concerned because he was saying these, these rulers are taking great liberties at what they're using to hurt people, uh, to flog them. And he, and he says, there's got to be a law here. It was Horace. He said, there's a rule. There needs to be a rule to assign fair penalties to offenses lest you flay or scourge them to death. Nobody should have to die this way, the poet Horace said. And yet here is Jesus in his humiliation and he is scourged as an enemy. We see in verses 27 and 28 that a whole battalion of soldiers have come around him and they are using him as the object of their derision. They are humiliating him. And this was very common to do this to prisoners. They spat upon him. We're talking about a battalion of soldiers. It could have been up to 600 of them all rallying around. They are spitting on him. They form a crown of thorns and they press it into his head. They give him a reed as to symbolize uh, his kingship. And they must have taken off that red uh, piece of Roman soldier garment to put around him. And hail, king of the Jews. They mocked him. Jesus' humiliation. Jesus has been unable to carry his cross in verse 32. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power can't hold up 40 pounds of wood. He has so been brutalized already. And Simon of Cyrene, in the physical weakness of Jesus, takes up this cross. Jesus is taken outside of the city in verse 33. Don't miss this. They take him to the place of a skull, Golgotha. The word Calvary is Latin for the place of a skull. It was likely, as you can see, likely some kind of a geographical identifier. This is the place you go. That was Roman, but for Jews, this is very significant. Get him out of the holy city. He is a piece of garbage. Get him out. And as Jesus was raised at Calvary... 
As they were crossing the brook Kidron, you could see in the distance the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, the garbage pit. This is highly significant when the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was killed and the blood was used in the sacrifice. That sacrifice, Hebrews 13 would remind us in the New Testament, was taken out and burned outside the city. Sin outside the city. This is Jesus. Put him outside of the camp. The sinless, the spotless Son of God, treated like refuse, led away, forsaken, discarded, condemned. This is Jesus, the one who was so humiliated. Jesus is given wine in verse 34, mixed with gall. Wine, the psalm says, is for cheer. And yet they mixed it with gall. We're not really sure why they did this, but we know historically that the Romans needed to get their, their condemned people on crosses. How are you going to do this? And so the thought was is that, that this gall, which really is the word for bitter, uh, Mark describes it as myrrh. Think about his birth. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, predicting his death. Here they mix this bitter herb with wine. And they, the Romans used this as a bit of a sedative so they could get the person on the cross. That it would dull the pain in order for the crucified, the convicted, to be able, for them to be able to put nails and sever that median nerve and get them on that cross. And yet Jesus would have none of it. Jesus refuses to dull the pain of his sacrifice. He does not accept this drink. He refuses to drink. And it's one more way that Jesus, his humiliation comes into focus. How far will he descend? How much will he suffer? And in verse 35, we see the Savior of sinners lifted high. They put him on the center tree as if he was the worst of the three. They lift him up off the ground as if he's not good enough for earth and yet not good enough for heaven. Jesus is crucified at the height of his humiliation. You know, Matthew's language is very underwhelming here. You might say, how disappointing. His description of this event was, and when they had crucified him, Grammatically, the crucifixion is not even the main clause in the sentence. It's so passing. It's underplaying the physical sufferings of Jesus. And yet we are reminded, as we read the whole book of Matthew, Matthew is telling the story of a king. And, and this is the culmination, but it didn't begin here. Jesus, all the way along, the enemy has accused the Savior from the very beginning. And he is weaving behind the curtain. And it's all right if Jesus pronounced himself to be king, but the moment that he does so for the salvation of sinners, we have a problem. And here we see Satan's accusations again hurled at the Savior. Everyone participates, rulers, bystanders, passers-by, the Roman soldiers, they mock him. They wouldn't even let him take his own clothes. They stripped him naked on the cross and they gambled for his possessions. He had nothing except for the clothes on his back and they took that too. 
his humiliation. How great is his love in which he endured the greatest of shame. In verse 36, we read that the soldiers sat down to rest while Jesus did his work. The soldiers' work was to nail Jesus to the cross and watch him there. They put a sign over his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is your king. What could this dying, discarded man possibly bring to the world? Yet in the plan of God, he's suffering for you and me. You know, never at any moment was Jesus dying. We hear this all the time. Jesus was dying on the cross. Never at any point was he actually dying. To be dying sounds a whole lot like I am out of, it's, it's out of my hands. It's something that is happening passively to me. I'm not active in my own dying. This is something that happens outside of my will. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ from eternity past was destined for the cross because he was going to go there to die for sinners. Last week we asked the question, did he die for you? So many in the world have this great understanding of all things Easter. They know about Jesus and yet they have no Savior. It's in the head, but not in the heart. They have never bowed the knee and said, Lord Jesus, save me. Thank you so much for the work that you have done on the cross for me. You died on the center tree so that I could go free. Jesus doing the work for me. Working to breathe so he could bear the sins of those who would rely upon him for salvation. My friends, where is the victory at the cross? The victory at the cross is not in Satan's work to get him there. Colossians 2.15, it says there that, that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's why we kept reading in Philippians chapter 2. He has bestowed a name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, the Savior, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And yet, my friends, Satan still roars at you and me today. He still roars, but not like he did. Like a serpent with its head cut off, he continues to flail, but only on his way to death. Satan has no longer the authority to stop the spread of the gospel. He was defeated at the cross. With a Savior so great and a humility so wonderful, Jesus bows his head and yields up his spirit. In another gospel, he says, It is finished. And it is finished. The work to save sinners like you, young and old. No matter what you have done, Jesus Christ can save you today. He can give you peace with God because of his death on the cross. 
The day of his humility was indeed the height of his humility, but it wasn't all of his humility. Jesus the King has died for sinners like you and me. You know, I was reading in Matthew 1, the beginning, and, and I remember, uh, I think it's about verse 21, I think it is, where the angel speaks to Joseph, and he says, you're going to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And, you know, Jesus three times tells his disciples in the book of Matthew what's going to happen. He's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to be raised. But it is only, it is only at the Last Supper, only at the Supper, when Jesus says that he is going to do this for the forgiveness of sins, that it becomes clear. This is when this is when the objections start coming. My friends, Calvary means everything for you and for me. It's not just the Son of God coming and dying humbly for us to show how great He is, but He died for the forgiveness of your sins. The question today is, will you trust Him? Let's pray. Father, we see him. We see him there on that center tree. Some people here might even have a piece of jewelry around their neck with a, a symbol of that great suffering. The world turns today and knows something's going on with Friday. Something religious has happened. But Father, it's going to take your spirit to bring home into our hearts today what Jesus has done for the sinner. For those of us who have bowed the knee, today is a day of great sorrow, but a day that anticipates great celebration because we know that the grave cannot hold him and he will be raised to victory. Father, for some here today that do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, we pray that death will be dead for them as Christ will rise for sinners like them. We pray that the finished work of Christ would invite them today as the Spirit works in their hearts to come to Him and to receive Him as their Savior. Father, to trust Jesus for themselves. Father, do the work we cannot do. Save sinners today, we pray, as we look to Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this week's sermon. For more information about our church, visit tgcw.org.